Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor at places like the Dispatch, Arc Digital, and other places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link. Or you can go and use the links in the show notes at any time, which are available by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I look forward to reading them. A quick announcement right here, though. This new this week, we are on Amazon Music's podcast service. It is just launched, from what I understood. We had there are emails that I was getting about these over the last couple of weeks about making sure this podcast was on there. And as of this week, the podcast is up on there. You can search for us under Amazon Music's podcast service. If you just go through there, search. I think you may have to search for podcasts first and then go through and get to the show. But either way, you can find us on Amazon's podcast service now. So if you want to use that, you are free to do so. So in this week's show, though, it's a single topic episode. I'm going to talk about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her legacy, and then talk through the politics of this entire situation and who the potential potential Trump nomination nominees, who they could end up being. And that'll be towards the end of it. And I'm pretty sure, around 100%, that it will be one of the two people that I'll end up talking about. So, And then with that, we will wrap up with the light item for this week. So that is this week's show, just covering the Supreme Court and everything related to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So just in case you've been under a rock for the last few days, and I do know some people who have been, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away Friday evening. She died, in fact, right as the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah began, and she we got the notices literally in the Eastern and Central time zones the moment that the, that holiday began. So for Jews, that holiday begins at sunset, and I, I mean, I did laugh. It seems wrong, but I did laugh at some of the Jewish writers who I follow who... At sunset, they got off all of their electronic devices. There's no TV or news that they're going to be following at that time because they're observing the holiday and thinking through all of the things related to it. And so they, they haven't seen anything on this for the past 48 hours. So one of the writers, writers and editors that I follow, his name's Seth Mandel, he turned his phone on late Sunday evening for the first time and was just getting the news and playing catch-up. Um, he writes and edits politics for a living. He's over at the Washington Examiner, a really great guy. But, you know, the timing was really bad for him because he's just now finding out. So literally as the moment that they are starting observances for Rosh Hashanah, that is when that news dropped. And he he did have some good words. I thought they were worth noting. 
just in a tweet, he said, uh, you know, obviously I have some catching up to do. For now, I'll just say the revered Jewish judge, referring to Ginsburg, who is Jewish, the revered Jewish judge dying on Judgment Day in the middle of a plague feels like a general judgment on society and not a good one. I hope her family finds peace. Grieving in the spotlight only adds to the pain. That seems right to me. I can't say I disagree with him on any single point there because I have lived through the year of 2020. So that seems accurate to me. Um, I was trying to figure out where to start today's show just because there is so much that you could cover and talk about right off the top. Um, And so I thought I would start out just talking about Ginsburg, talk about her legacy on the court, and then we hit the politics and everything on that on the backside, because it seems just a little wrong to start out there. So I'm a conservative. I'm just say that up front. I'm pretty open about that. And so to say that I had disagreements with Ruth Bader Ginsburg would be an understatement, because I'm also a lawyer, so I've studied all these disagreements and studied her opinions, or the, studied the disagreements that she had with Scalia, Thomas, and others. And I'm not 100% sure I can name one thing, one thing we do agree on. I could probably find some obvious cases out there because there are 90 cases that are obvious where we would have voted the same way on a case, but on the big, big meaningful issues and the big questions of life, I'm pretty sure we disagreed on all of them. But Ginsburg and Scalia, they were best friends, and I think the best way to understand her legacy is to sort of contrast it with his because they were best friends, but the way they went about how they handled being a justice on the Supreme Court was pretty different. And so that's, when you see how one did it, you kind of understand how it was different from the other. They were both most of the most impactful justices of their era, but they got that impact in different ways. And despite being diametrically opposed on all issues, like I said, they were the best of friends. Uh, They were that way from their time on the lower courts. I think it was the D.C. Circuit they were both on for a short period of time, and then on up into the Supreme Court. Christopher Scalia, he's one of uh, Antonin Scalia's sons. He was sharing some memories on Twitter after the news came out, and he shared one specific story that I liked quite a bit that I hadn't heard, and it was one by Judge Jeffrey Sutton, who was interviewing Scalia for a book. And then at the end of the interview, Sutton got up to leave, and Scalia pointed over to some roses they had saved over one on the desks, and he told Sutton, he said he needed to go down the hallway and deliver these roses to Ruth, talking about himself, Scalia, to go deliver them to her for her birthday. And so Sutton, he was flabbergasted. Everyone knew that they were friends, but he was he was shocked about this, and he said that uh, he hadn't even given this many types of roses to his own wife, to which, you know, Scalia retorted, well, you ought to try it sometime. Well, Sutton, not wanting to give up the last word to Scalia, he asked another question and said, well, what good have those roses done for you? Name one five to four case of any significance where you got Justice Ginsburg's vote. To which Scalia replied, some things are more important than votes. So Sutton ended up letting him have that last word and ended up walking out. And, you know, Scalia won that one for sure. And that's something 
just a general idea that we did used to believe in as a society, that you could be friends with other people, even best friends with other people, despite the politics. And the divisiveness of our time is trying to kill that type of thing off, which is what makes these kinds of friendships here so rare. I was on Instagram, and that was where I shared a picture of of Scalia and Ginsburg on vacation together because they did that. They went on vacation together, and this one they were both riding an elephant. One of their favorite things to do outside of vacationing was to go to operas. They were opera buddies and went to them all the time. Scalia loved them. He would sing them in his offices, just whole nine yards. And so they got along, and you've heard there's some been some stories. I think it was either Gorsuch or Kavanaugh was talking about how he got to know Ginsburg, and she was trying to get him into opera because of our time with Scalia. So they were very good friends, even though they were on polar opposite sides of all the big cases that they were they were on. So when you're talking about their impacts and how they built their legacies, Scalia was well known for his opinions, especially the dissents, where his fiery remarks, they they just always drew attention. His legacy was about building the schools of originalism and textualism that we know today and starting things like the Federalist Society. Scalia's impact, it was it'll be felt for years just because he had long-lasting philosophical impacts that have changed how people read the law. If you look, he he's the one who brought in the idea of bringing in encyclopedias and getting people to understand the exact meaning of words, either from history or in the current day, where you get exact meanings and follow that instead of just what you think those words may mean. So he's the one who did all of that. He was, you know, when he was put on the court in the 80s, he was part of the true conservative minority on the bench. So he was often at disagreements with the rest of the courts. That allowed him to write all these dissents and concurrences that helped form this vast new legal movement on the right. And so that made him a lot of times just an army of one, facing down every last single argument that he encountered with a very sharp Pen. And some of those old sense ended up becoming good law. Uh, one of the ones he did on independent councils ended up becoming the exact law, even though he was the only one on it. So that was his impact. He built schools of thought, he built new philosophies, and people continue to follow those ever since. Even if they disagree with him, they still have to go back to what he said to figure out how they would move forward. So Ginsburg, on the other hand, she had similar writing powers, but her greater power than writing was about building consensus behind the scenes. And it was particularly her influence that made the liberal block of the court a true actual voting block that stuck together through thick and thin. She's the one who helped build consensus among them and would work to pull other conservatives over on various cases. And then she would go the extra step of having those conservatives write the majority opinion and then get the liberal bloc to co-sign on those opinions in order to get the results that she was wanting in these cases, but to make them more unassailable, to make him more grounded and more on the lines of stare decisis. Because if you're going to have a 5-4 decision, it's better to have it be bipartisan. It is over harder to overturn that on just a purely partisan basis. So she was the consensus builder. She built these coalitions on these cases in order to get certain outcomes. 
So you have Scalia, who's the thinker and the writer, and, you, and then you have Ginsburg, who's the negotiator and the deal maker. And while you can point to you know several powerful uh, decisions that she wrote on her part, in the biggest cases, you know, her fingerprints are everywhere that you can see, her real impact was getting the end result that the liberals wanted, which impacted case wins on the long haul. So it seems, just, you know, looking around, that this is the same trait that John Roberts has picked up, too, where he's working to build more cases with consensus, getting votes together, trying to avoid these really contentious 5-4 decisions and get closer to 6-3, 7-2, and then also rack up as many 9-0 decisions that you can in order to make case law, make precedent more stable in the long term. Because if you've got nine justices of all these ideological beliefs agreeing in an outcome, that makes that outcome stronger in the end. So without her influences on the court, without Ginsburg there, those duties of the liberal bloc will probably fall to Elena Kagan, who has a sharp pen herself. She's a very good writer and also works to build consensus with Roberts. You can usually tell in some of these cases when Kagan has cut a deal with Roberts because you will typically see these are going to be the 7-2 opinions, at least over the past few years when she's been on there. These have been where you'll see... A 7-2 opinion with Kagan and Breyer, who will join Roberts, and then you would have Ginsburg and Sotomayor in the dissent by themselves. And so Kagan was sort of splitting that liberal coalition and getting it to work with Roberts in order to lessen the impact of some of these decisions. That's sort of been the behind-the-scenes deal that's happened there. So the role that Ginsburg's playing will probably fall to Kagan now, who is just the best deal maker of all of them. Of all the liberal justices, Kagan has the greatest respect among the conservatives. Scalia even told Obama, before Obama had even picked anyone for that position, that Kagan was the best option available, and Obama agreed. That's who he ended up picking for his second nomination. So, you know, and I don't even have any that many disagreements. They are probably all right. She is probably the best option that they had. Kagan has written better opinions on the liberal side of the court than just about anyone. Now, you also have Sotomayor, who votes like Ginsburg, but she's never shown any of the deal-making talents that we've known for a while. She either always went along with Ginsburg and voted with it, or she would write a dissent on her own, something along those lines. There's nothing, she's always more ideologically set than some of the others on the court. So she's a little bit like Alito or Thomas in that respect. She's doing her own thing, but that lessens her impact on moving and maneuvering some of these cases that you would see in other situations. So Ginsburg built coalitions for some of the biggest cases over the last 25 years, and her long-term influence in that regard will matter because you're going to keep coming up into these cases where she built a coalition and now that precedence stands. She's not going to leave behind a whole new school of legal thought like Scalia did. That just wasn't her thing. And you really don't find those kinds of things as much on the left. I know people talk about, you know, a living constitutional theory and making it read what you want, but that's not quite as strong an ideology as what you'll find on the right with originalism or textualism, where it's a little bit more defined. On the left, you can reach a lot of different conclusions. And so there's not a strong effort to rein it in and make it quite as 
guardrailed, as you might expect you to find on the right. So Ginsburg built coalitions. There's not going to be a school of thought after her. Scalia did, and that's what's going to give him a longer-term impact, I think. But people are going to have to contend with her era and the opinions that she built over this period of time because they do matter. So that's sort of her legacy and how it likely going to last long term. It's going to be there because she built precedent that the Supreme Court's going to recognize and build upon. So that is going to matter. There's just no way around it. And as to how the liberal bloc moves going forward, a lot of that's going to depend on if they're going to be able to stay together, because now there's just really three of them, depending on how this nomination process goes. And so that's going to weaken their power, which means it's going to be up to people like Kagan to try to cut deals. Breyer and Sotomayor are there, but they do not have quite the strong deal-making personality that Kagan does. So it'll be interesting to see how that shapes dynamics moving forward. So I'm going to take a quick break right here. When we come back, we'll get into the politics and the nomination battles and all of that. So take a quick break. And we'll be right back. All right. So Ginsburg's death happens 46 days out from the election. So that would have been on Friday. So we're losing days now every, every second. So it is extremely likely that Donald Trump is going to name his nominee this next week. He said as much, and I tend to take him at his word on that. I haven't seen exactly when they're going to start doing ceremonies and stuff for Ginsburg, but it appears that he's going to just go ahead and do that anyway. I don't know if he'll wait until after you know, a funeral or something like that is done or what or how they're going to handle that at all, but it, I personally would expect it to come out Tuesday or Wednesday a big midweek news story. That's at least what I'm expecting on this front. So we're going to get a new nominee, and they're going to start enrolling this new candidate. And no matter when they announce it, either way, the nomination process begins in earnest next week. That That's going to be true whether or not they name somebody or not. Trump has said he's nominating a woman, which I would expect. He's That's long been the rumor on this point. And he's touting that fact at rallies already, where people are now chanting, fill that seat, fill that seat. So that is, of course, driving journalists into a tizzy, but you know, what else is do? These are his rallies. These are his WrestleManias. So this, this is what these events are like. So the politics of this are very straightforward. So I'm just going to tell you up front what's going to happen, and then we'll walk through all of it. And this is, I'm basically going to, I've got a column coming out on this. Uh, It should come out late Monday. I just submitted that off as a draft. So this is all going to be the same thing. This is going to be what you should expect. There is going to be a new justice on the Supreme Court of the United States by the end of the year. Mitch McConnell will get a vote on a nominee, and the Senate will pass that nominee before the year is up. You can take that to the bank right now. Republicans have a majority of 53 to 47 in the Senate, which is more than they had during the Kavanaugh nomination when it was just 51-49. And Republican senators only do two things right now in the Trump era. Only two. They cut taxes and they confirm judges. That's it. 
and right now they're all out of taxes to cut. Democrats are blocking any more COVID-19 relief, any police reform ideas, all of that's gone. So right now it's back to what they do best, which is confirm judges by the truckload, and they are specifically set up to confirm Supreme Court nominees. If there is one thing a conservative-leaning senator believes in, it is the fact that the Supreme Court needs more conservative justices on it. That is a universally believed position, and that is believed up and down the caucus. Everyone believes that one simple point. So, the only real question left after that is really when this all takes place. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And the, and the when here is before or after the election. Now, I tend to think the actual results of the actual voting on this will happen after the election. It is possible for them to get a vote in before the election, but I tend to think think they will wait. There are several senators on the Judiciary Committee who have tough re-election contests in front of them, and I think they'd prefer to be campaigning as opposed to being cooped up in Washington, D.C. Now, interestingly, on that front... Kamala Harris is also on the Judiciary Committee, so if McConnell wanted to sort of tweak the Biden campaign a bit, he could get these hearings started and prevent her from helping out as much on the campaign trail. I don't exactly know how long they could do that because they're going to have recesses and stuff where they're just going to have to deal with things, but if you wanted to take Harris out of you know, the Biden campaign strategy and force Biden to have to give more speeches than Kamala and go into these states, that could be one way that you could do it. So there could be a little bit of politics at play here, kind of like how people talked about how the impeachment hearings impacted or could have potentially impacted all of the primaries and things of that nature. I don't think it ended up impacting things that much, but it did put a lot more stress on the people running for president. And of course, if you can put more stress on Biden and force him to have to make these speeches and do different things, it's forcing him to do something that he's just not great at. I mean, on Sunday alone, his latest gaffe was saying that 200 million people had died from COVID-19. Potentially, they would have all died by the end of his speech. So I'm really hoping that there's still people alive out there to listen to this podcast because if 200 million people actually died, I think we would notice. But you know, we're being killed by everything, according to Democrats. But any event, Nancy Pelosi also went on all the Sunday talk shows, and she was claiming that she and her House cohorts, they had a quiver full of arrows that they could use to help slow down and stop the nomination process from going forward. Chuck Schumer joined in. He's apparently hosting some kind of video call thing with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to talk about possible options that the House and maybe Senate Democrats can take to slow down or stop this thing from happening before the election. Now, this is just all utter nonsense. This is bloviating from politicians who have little to no say about what happens here. That's not including Schumer, who will be involved in the Senate process, but Pelosi and AOC, they do not have any power or any say of what happens in the Senate. The Constitution is pretty clear on that one exact point. The president nominates, and the Senate confirms. The end. So the House has no place at all, no powers, nothing that they can do. And the only thing they've mentioned out loud 
that they could do is that they'll somehow impeach Attorney General Bill Barr and force the Senate to proceed to a trial on that impeachment. And of course, they could also impeach Trump, but none of this is going to work at all. And if you have, you know, these lower cabinet official impeachments, if they did decide to impeach Barr to try to slow down and prevent this, the Senate, what they typically have done in the past, and this is true of judges and other types of things, is that they will send that proceeding to a committee and get it off the main Senate floor. And the committee can handle it if you want to have a trial and everything, and the Senate can just accept what the committee says. Or McConnell can just hold an up-down vote when that thing arrived and swat it away instantly. And, you know, I, I don't think Nancy Pelosi is dumb enough to do this. And, at least I don't think she is. I don't think she's dumb enough to launch another impeachment against Trump. Because the last impeachment made him immensely popular and pretty much tied him up or gave him a lead in all these swing states that are now hotly contested and where Biden thinks he has a lead. So you do not want to give Trump the same boost that you did during the impeachment. Now, then maybe they do this because they're so, their their base demands that they do something, and so they're going to do this, and they're going to start launching these impeachments. But Republicans are going to see this for what it is. These are not true impeachments, and so they're going to go in lockstep against them. There's not an agreement to impeach anyone related to anything because everyone sees what it is. It is just a time delay tactic, which can be swatted away pretty easily and pretty harmlessly. So they can say anything they want here, and I I can't even think of anything that they could do. They'll probably come up with something, but there's just nothing here worth considering. They have no power. This is all, from my vantage point, all about getting attention and donations on their part. They want to appear that they're trying to negotiate and they have all this power and they're trying to be menacing to the Senate Republicans, but they truly, truly have no power at all. So, to repeat, Republicans are going to have a new justice on the court by the end of the year. And I doubt many are going to get cold feet on that, because even if some of them lose their races in this election, the odds are that they will happily vote for a conservative justice on their way out the door as a shot to the other side during the lame duck session after the election. The nomination is going to happen. The only question is, will it happen before or after the election? Like I said, I don't really know the answer to that. I've talked myself into both sides, out of both sides. I could see it going either way. I lean more towards after the election, Uh, but these types of things have happened in the past. Jimmy Carter nominated Stephen Breyer to the First Circuit Court of Appeals, and Breyer was a friend of Ted Kennedy, and he did that the week after he lost the election, and Breyer proceeded to sail through, and he later became a Supreme Court justice. So Democrats will argue about a post-election nomination process being bad and illegitimate and all these sorts of things. But they don't have the power or the evidence to prove that the illegitimacy is the proof. These are people trying to create a crisis where none actually exists. They want people to believe there is something there when there is not a thing there. And let's be real about this, too. If the roles were reversed, Democrats had won and held a majority in the Senate every year since 2014, as Republicans have done. If Democrats had done all that, they would absolutely fill this Supreme Court role. A hundred times out of a hundred times. This, you don't even have to question this. They would absolutely fill this role. There is not a single scenario 
where they don't fill this seat. So this outrage is all over the fact that they're losing this battle. This is not about the legitimacy of the court. This is not about any other thing. This is about the fact that they are losing a seat on the Supreme Court, and they've lost one of their icons. And so this is making this far more intense. And they're also afraid they're going to lose long-term battles, like on issues like abortion. I tend to think they're probably right about that because I've I see what some of these nominees have said and I agree with them on this stuff. But it does ultimately depend on who Trump nominates and it depends on what cases make it to the Supreme Court. A 6-3 conservative majority would be a seismic change. It would be a good seismic change. Now on this politics front here as we're talking through it, the main objection that you'll read, and this is, I've seen this in places like The Bulwark and other places like them, these are, these are hardcore never-Trump. They claim to be conservative, but they're hardcore never-Trump to the point now where they're supporting Democrats and oppose all Republican measures. And I've got my problems with Trump, and I didn't vote for him in 2016, but I definitely do not fall in this group. And because now they're claiming... Anyone that Trump nominates, any conservative, would be bad. They claim nominating someone like Amy Coney Barrett, anyone like her, is dangerous because it risks a political crisis. And I had a tweet storm over the weekend arguing through one of these pieces, uh, by one of them by a writer that I otherwise generally respect, Jonathan V. Last. And he was arguing that this, this nomination process puts our country into a political crisis and that ramming through a nominee risks a crisis that is so dangerous that Republicans should be the ones to disarm here. Now, do I, to which I say to that, just absolutely no. Not under any circumstances should Republicans ever take that stance. Democrats have threatened court packing and burning down institutions and all these sorts of things every day since the election of Trump. It has been particular high over the past year, and as we've gone through, you know, the virus, and you've gone through these 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 riots over police reform, and just on and on and on. So, Democrats have been full tilt, cranked up to eleven, with the knob turned off for about four years now, and so they claim that all these seats are stolen and more, and these are just false arguments. There's not even a hint of truth in them. Republicans are following the rules here to a T and nominating judges according to those rules. Democrats are the ones who are complaining like they did after the election. They're complaining, hey, we lost this election. So now, you know what? The Electoral College, that should get tossed out now. And now they're doing the same thing over the nomination process with judges and claiming that everything is bad and wrong here too because they're losing. So this is all nonsense. If they want to destroy things, I say go ahead and let them do it. If, if we're going to have this kind of political crisis, then we should have it. We should deal with this now because we should just let the American people see what they really are and what they really want to do because these are not illegitimate actions taken by Republicans. Republicans are following the letter of the Constitution. They've won the races the politicians who won these races are now implementing policies and nominating and voting in people to the courts. So this is not a political crisis. This is a political crisis that exists only in the minds of Democrats and their supporters. This is not something any Republican action could fix. The Republicans could do anything here and it wouldn't fix it. 
if Republicans do disarm and, you know, they step up and say, well, I guess we won't do anything. We'll just wait to the results of the election. We're not going to nominate anyone. We're not going to do anything. We can guarantee the Democrats aren't going to do that. They're not going to disarm next time when this is them. They're not going to do they're not going to respond in any way. This is not something that Republican action can fix. Donald Trump could nominate Ruth Bader Ginsburg 2.0, and they would reject her because Trump nominated her. So this is just all crazy nonsense. Donald Trump should 100% nominate somebody to kick this process off. Is it going to be a political stink bomb? Absolutely. There's no avoiding this at all. But just because it can't be avoided doesn't mean Republicans should avoid doing their jobs here and nominating and voting a new justice through. So remember here, end of the year, new justice. That's going to happen. As to who that justice is going to be, all reports right now have said that it's been brought down to two people. So the initial list that I saw had three people on it, but everyone knew sort of straight up that this was going to be a, the nominee was going to be a woman. And generally everybody thought it was going to be one woman because she has the support of the base. And that is Judge Amy Coney Barrett of the Seventh Circuit. The third option on this list was a guy, so we all knew he could be tossed off. So that has really narrowed this list down to two people, and that is Judge Amy Coney Barrett of the Seventh Circuit and then Judge Barbara Lagoa of the Eleventh Circuit. And if I'm pronouncing, I believe it's Lagoa, if I'm pronouncing her name wrong, I apologize. I have not heard her name said at any point, so I'm going off just eyeballing this one. But anyway, Barrett, she's the one everyone knows because she was nominated and voted on in 2017. And it was there that we got the infamous moment with Senator Dianne Feinstein where she attacked Amy Coney Barrett's faith. And she gave a line along the lines that said, The dogma lives strongly in you. Something to that effect. And so there was a hashtag campaign with Catholics talking about the dogma living strongly in them, too. So it just it brought widespread commendation and mocking because Feinstein was implying a bar against Barrett purely on the grounds of her faith. And that is just flat out unconstitutional. You cannot tell a person that they can't have one of these seats on the basis of their faith. That is wrong. Now, Amy Coney Barrett is a Catholic, and she taught at Notre Dame Law School there for a while, but she's also different from your typical Catholics on this front. She's a part of a group called the People of Praise, and that's a segment of the Catholic... It's not really a part of the Catholic Church. They're a little bit outside of it, from what I understand, but they are more charismatic. So, And you can take the word charismatic there to have the full meaning of what you expect to find if you were in, you know, a typical evangelical or Protestant church and they said they were charismatic. That's going to hold the same meaning here for this Catholic group. So this is what makes her a little bit different. She said in the past her faith is important to her and that it, it means she has to go about doing things like kingdom building. These are all things that I would agree with in there entirely. That's what makes me more I mean, I'll just full out admit I am wildly biased in her favor for this seat because I have, on just on this one ground alone, I have far more in common with her than I do any other judge on the Supreme Court and probably most of the other nominees on that short list. So she's got a very strong record on all the right issues. She's got similar beliefs. So I'm very pro Amy Coney Barrett. 
She also recently joined a dissent in a case that I think is extremely important and that are going to end up being important in overturning Roe v. Wade down the line. It has to do with eugenic abortions and banning those. And I will probably do either... I've written... If you're a longtime reader, you've heard me talk about this subject nonstop. I haven't written about it recently, I don't think. I've pitched a, a similar piece on this to a couple places... And I'll probably end up reworking that and probably submitting it, talking about a few other things along this front. But it's a very important line of cases that is probably going to help overturn Roe v. Wade in the end. Now, for Judge Barbara Lagoa, she's a new member of the federal circuit. She's a longtime attorney, but she's new on the federal circuit. Uh, the other thing I should note, going back real quickly on, on Barrett, since it just popped into my head, she's also 48 years old and a mother of seven, so I think she can handle Supreme Court. She's also extremely young. Uh, she's four years younger than, four or five years younger than Barbara Lagoa, who is 40, I mean, not 40, she's 52, I believe it is. So Barrett also has a youth factor here that is very important if you follow Supreme Court nomination processes, so... Very important to have these people who are young on the bench. So, but back to Judge Lagoa. She's a new member on the federal circuit. She's worked on the Florida Supreme Court. She was put there, if I remember correctly, by Jeb Bush and has worked through legal circles with Ron DeSantis. And so she has, she's very well connected politically in Florida and is a Cuban-American and also Catholic. I know less about her, just straight up, because Trump didn't nominate her for the 11th Circuit until September of 2019. And her confirmation process didn't finish up until sometime sometime around the the impeachment. And I can't remember if it was before or after that. So she hasn't even been on the 11th Circuit for a year here, so I just have less of a feel for her. But... She sounds like she has a good legal pedigree. I don't doubt that she is conservative and has good positions on a lot of issues. She just doesn't have the, you know, just the battles that Amy Coney Barrett has already been through on this point. So my political instincts, just looking at this politically, say that the Lagoa nomination potential here is coming from one of three possible people here. It's it's either one from Florida Representative Matt Gates, who is very close to Trump and has been is very Trumpy, goes on the TV a lot. It could be coming from him or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, or it could also potentially be coming from Jared Kushner, who is behind the scenes. She's getting she came really out of nowhere. She's getting pitched as a good option to win over Florida voters because she's Cuban American. And so they're wanting to focus on all these traits that she brings to a winning coalition in the campaign. I tend to think that's a bad idea because they're not focusing on her legal legacy and her legal opinions and things like that, which I find far more important here just as a lawyer looking at this as a potential appointment here. Those types of things are far more important to me than whatever she may do to the election. And even with that, even with that, I still think they're wrong on reading the elections because up until now... All signs pointed to Trump nominating Amy Coney Barrett, and he's rumored to have been said that he was saving Barrett for a potential Ginsburg nomination slot because there are many, myself included, who were open to her getting nominated for the Kavanaugh slot that came up. Uh, she was still a little new on the court at that time, which made that a little difficult, but a lot of people were willing to throw her on right then. So 
my preferences from the Kavanaugh days were either for a guy named Raymond Kethledge or Amy Coney Barrett. So this time around, I'm fully on board with the Amy Coney Barrett bandwagon train that's going around right now. The other reason is that I just disagree with the politics that they are being pitched for Judge Lagoa over Barrett. And I this is not to disparage. This is I think they're both probably fine and they'll be be great. In a lot of respects, this is like me sitting here trying to pick out my favorite steak or my favorite candy or something, and all my favorites are present. This is just really getting down and saying, okay, no, I really actually want this person over this person for these these certain reasons. And the politics of this I think they're getting wrong because Trump's advisors seem to think that in order to win over Florida, they need to put forward this minority candidate for the Supreme Court to show that they are trying to court the Hispanic vote. There's been a lot of stories that have come out lately about how Trump is doing better with Hispanic voters. And so if you look at this purely on a you know a racial terms basis, that makes some level of sense. But I just don't think that it follows. Because if Barrett is nominated, Democrats are going to attack her faith. That is something that is 100% going to happen. She's a practicing Catholic. And so that's a fight. If you start attacking a Catholic and a Catholic's beliefs, that's going to echo across two areas. It will echo across the Midwest, where there are a lot of Catholics. And it's also going to echo across Florida, where there are more Catholics there, including those uh, who are Hispanic. That is a community where Catholicism is pretty strong. So if you're going only on racial terms here, you're basically giving up on the entire Midwest on that. If you open up this religious fight here and have and have Democrats attack a Catholic, that is going to be a much broader fight that will bring in more people. Now, the reason... The reason I think that you're going to see a fight over faith is because they've already done it on one hand. And what we've seen in both the Gorsuch and Kavanaugh hearings is that when Democrats are presented with a new nominee, they tend to go overboard. They tend to over their play their hands pretty harshly. Trump saw boosts, if I remember correctly, both after Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and that was partly to do with the fights that emanated from that. And so if you attack a woman with seven children for her faith and a bunch of other things, that is going to look bad. And it is wrong. You should not be attaching religious tests to these kinds of things. But based on past behavior and just also based on the types of pieces that I've already been seeing written— at the time, Vox was defending Feinstein, saying that it was fine and it wasn't anti-Catholic at all to bring all this up on Barrett. And in Slate, there was a columnist who who couched his piece in terms of saying he wasn't going after her faith, but he called her unusually and traditionally cruel and just went through this long list of things, which all the things he said he hated her for. I said, well, Trump should just hand that out as a flyer to all of his rallies and say, hey, this is who I'm going to nominate. Democrats hate her. You mean to nominate her? Everybody's going to cheer yes. It's pretty simple on that front. But that's, that's the politics is how I see them right now. The religious fight would be far bigger than just bringing out a political identity issue here with race. And it'll be one that as we've seen in the past, Democrats cannot resist doing. It's something where they'll overplay their hands and Trump can hammer them. He can go hammer and tongs on them all day long. So 
that's how I see the politics. We'll end up finding soon enough. Trump's, like I said, Trump said he's going to nominate someone this next week, and we'll find out who it is. I'm hoping for Amy Coney Barrett, but the list of people that he has here, they're all good people. So either way, whoever he picks, a bruising confirmation battle is in front of us, and it's going to play out in front of the election. And just being open here, I don't think this is the last shoe that's going to drop on this election. Because remember, the Access Hollywood tape did not drop until October 7th, 2016. We haven't even gotten to the part of this race where the quote-unquote October surprises start dropping. We haven't even gotten that far yet. So there's plenty of time for more nuclear bombs to drop in this race. And you might want to go ahead and just pull one out for all the people who had a book coming out on Donald Trump. That'd be like Bob Woodward, Michael Cohen, who was a Trump's niece or somebody like that who also had a book out on him. You want to talk about getting wiped out by the news cycle. Those books, they might as well have not even come out at this point. I don't even know if anybody's going to bother buying them at this point because that's no longer important. No one cares about Bob Woodward. No one cares about Michael Cohen anymore. Only the most hardcore resistant types are still going out there and buying those, or in the event of me, people who collect Bob Woodward books. So, a lot of time to go, but this new this event right here single-handedly wiped out just about everything before it. And it'll be the major story moving forward. So now you have the Supreme Court, the coronavirus, and these riots going on. Those are your three main stories. They're probably going to all start interacting with each other soon. So that's the lay of the land as I see it. McConnell is going to shove this thing through because he's not going to let the Supreme Court seat be risked by an election. And Republicans are in bad shape in a lot of these Senate races. So McConnell's going to end up dropping the hammer on this sooner than rather than later, in my opinion. So you can buckle up. It's going to be a rough election, and it's going to ramp up to another level now because now all three branches of the government are involved. You've got the presidents and Congress both running for office, and you've got a seat on the Supreme Court up for grabs. So we're probably going to see a lot more massive stories coming out, but this is going to be the big one this week, and it's going to color everything that comes after. So keep your head on a swivel. A lot of stuff coming down the pike. All right, so before we leave, we've got this week's light item, and it's also going to be political, but it was funny. So it's going to be a little bit kind of like if you watched The Daily Show back in the day with Jon Stewart. This is going to be sort of like his moment of zen that he would play at the end, which just was usually some kind of off-the-wall speech where you're somebody saying something and you just can't believe what they're saying. So this past week, Joe Biden gave a speech, and he was trying to make the case He's a man of the people. He's a man of the little guy, the man of the working class, and he's trying to win their votes. And so he said, you know, this is a race about Scranton versus Park Avenue, you know, the little guy versus the big city guys. And Joe is, of course, one of the little guys. Now, just by itself, there's nothing particularly interesting about that kind of statement. It's something you would expect Joe Biden to say. It's something you would expect Trump to claim to say, actually, too. And so there, there's really nothing special about that kind of speech unless, unless, unless you're a big news anchor on MSNBC who was offended by Joe Biden attacking rich liberal neighborhoods. So take a listen here and listen to this clip. Michael, Joe Biden said yesterday that his campaign is Scranton 
versus Park Avenue. Why is he going with this divide and conquer approach? That's Trump's thing. What about a message for all Americans? I don't live on Park Avenue, but I live pretty close to it. And you know how I got there? Working my butt off. He doesn't want my vote. So, yeah, there you go. Joe Biden doesn't want the rich people vote on Park Avenue. <laughs> I'd say, you know, I was laughing after I, after I listened to that. And I think after hearing that, I'm starting to understand the French Revolution just a little bit more on a more personal basis after listening to MSNBC anchors are, you know, complain that Joe Biden doesn't want their vote because they might live on Park Avenue. So that's all I've got for this week's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DvonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.